Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. Welcome to this very special live podcast recording. When I first started the podcast, it was deep in the pandemic and the idea of even doing this. In fact, actually, fun fact, I say that Anita was my very first ever live podcast recording way back when. So actually, this feels like a real full circle moment that we're back here again doing another one and kicking off this live event series. But like I said, when I started the podcast, it was deep in the pandemic and the idea of us getting together and being able to have situations where we could be answering questions questions and really delivering hopefully what I feel is a is an informative and a helpful evening in terms of the women's health space felt really far off so it feels so exciting to be here and to kick it off with an amazing guest Anita's been a friend of mine for a long time we are old gym buddies we are <laughs> friends from from way back when and um, she's a pretty special person very accomplished I will read you her bio and my jaw will probably be on the floor by the end of it of how she fits it all in but I'm really excited that she's given up her time this evening from what is a very busy schedule to be our first guest. So for a formal introduction, um, Dr. Anita Mitra is a gynecologist and women's health expert. She has over 10 years of experience of working in the NHS in obstetrics and gynecology, and she now specializes in the surgery for gyne cancers and benign conditions such as endometriosis, adenomyosis, fibroids, and PCOS. She also has over 20 years of experience in medical research and has a PhD from Imperial College London. Her first book, The Gynekeek, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Down There Healthcare was a bestseller in 2019. And her second book, which we're here to talk about this evening, Dealing With Problem Periods was published last week. In her spare time, she is also a mother, 
would you believe, to one-year-old twins. So like I said, I'm not quite sure how she fits it all in, but she does. And like I said, she has given up her time this evening to be here with us, of which I am so grateful. So I guess launching right in, I've kind of split this chat down into a couple of different sections. The first one's kind of talking about periods in general. And I really wanted to dig in by asking you about the title of your book, really, which is what we mean by problem periods. I guess for us, understanding what constitutes a quote unquote normal period will be really helpful than identifying what we mean by a, a problem period. So for those listening and those here, what might we identify as a normal cycle when it comes to our menstrual cycle? Yeah, well, I think that's a really good place to start. And also, I just want to say thank you so much for having me and, and thanks for all of you being here. I was really lucky when I started writing my second book. Uh, my publisher was basically like, so what do you want to write about? And I was like, periods. Because there's just, you know, this is something that we all, well, most of us here probably have periods and it's something that we all go through multiple times a year and we just don't really know very much about. And I just think that they can cause so much anxiety and for a lot of people, they're not problematic, but for a lot of people and, you know, most of the people I see, they are incredibly problematic. And so a period, um, I'm sure everyone knows, but just to be, you know, start 101, because, you know, when are you ever really taught this, um, is basically when you bleed every month, you're shedding the lining of your uterus. Um, so uterus and womb are the same thing. Um, but, you know, I'm a doctor, so let's call, call it what it is. <laughs> and um, so the reason that we have a period is to just basically refresh this lining, because the lining is there and it thickens up throughout the month so that it's actually getting ready to be able to implant a pregnancy. And for a lot of people that probably is actually really annoying because most of the time we're not trying to get pregnant. Um, and so this kind of thing is happening every month that is just a real pain in the bum essentially. Um, and so you should be having a period approximately every month. So the textbooks say 28 days. Now actually 10% of us have a period that comes every 28 days. Um, but something between sort of, um, well, the textbooks say 21 to 35 days. So I always say you should be able to kind of have an idea of when your period is going to arrive in terms of how regular it is. Um, because having a period that's not 28 days, so maybe it's 27, 29, 30, that's still regular if that's what your cycle is. Have an idea of when it's going to happen kind of have an idea of how long it's going to last for. And so about sort of four or five days would be average. And I would say it shouldn't be too heavy and it shouldn't be too painful. And so again, textbooks always talk about 80 mils. I mean, gosh, who knows what 80, how do you know that's 80 mils? Well, lots of people do use menstrual cups these days and so you can kind of measure it. But for me, the most important thing is what can you as an individual handle. You might have people who, you know, I always talk to people about how many pads, tampons, how many times you change your menstrual cup. And there's a real variety. And what one person will say, so for example, say you use five pads per day. For one person, that's a really heavy period. And for another person, actually, they judge that to be a really light period. So I think it's so individual and it's what you feel. So obviously that's kind of discussing what I guess we mean by a quote unquote normal period. And again, there's going to be variances, like you said, of days and kind of heaviness. But from what I'm hearing, it's that within yourself, you can kind of identify roughly when your period is going to come and there's nothing that's too difficult or challenging about it. So I guess if we then move on to encountering kind of problem periods, 
I think the one thing that I tend to experience most and I talk about a lot and I know that others um, really do is experiencing pain um, during their their monthly bleed um, or actually at other points during their cycle. Some people report feeling pain during ovulation as well. Um, so can you explain exactly what period pains actually are? Because sometimes it just feels like this like horrible thing and you're like, what is going on within my body? So understanding what actually happens when we get that pain. Yeah. I think um, I just want to start by saying I think discussing pain when it comes to um, women and, and gynae health is something that's really problematic um, and it's often you know has historically been really underplayed and you know you just kind of think well I'm having my period so I'm supposed to have pain. I mean yes they are they are going to be a little bit uncomfortable I you know that's honest but they shouldn't really be interfering with your daily life. So the reason that you get period pain is because the uterus has three layers okay so it has the internal layer which is the endometrium so that's the lining that your body is shedding and then you have the myometrium which is the muscle layer um, and then you have the serosa which is the outside layer it's kind of like a um a smooth wrapping that enables the rest of the organs in the pelvis to slide over one another and so the muscle layer has to contract just as when you are in labor and having a baby it has to do the same kind of movements the same kind of um, muscle movements to help the blood to get out to help the lining to shed and that's why you get period pain and so i mean it's usual that on the first or second day generally you, you, you you'll notice that there's something going on but that should really be it you shouldn't be I always say if you're clock watching, thinking when can I take painkillers again, that to me is a sign that this is probably something that is, you know, interfering with your life and probably needs attention. It doesn't mean that it's something sinister, but I just think that there's probably something that we could optimise and, and make things better for you. That's really helpful. And I think, you know, I'm I'm sure I'm not alone in this room of being one of those people that's like, when can I take another painkiller? And I do think that you're right in terms of addressing that that kind of conversation around women's pain and, um, you know, going to the GP and saying, oh, I get really painful periods and just being like, oh, you know, go on to contraception or the, the, the options are fairly limited in terms of managing it. Yeah. And also if we look at things like, and, and we'll move on to this later, but the diagnosis of specific conditions that can result in really painful periods, that journey being a really long one, leaving women feeling a little bit despondent as to like, you know, I'm not getting any help at all here. Yeah. Um, and again, like you said, there's something, it's something that happens once a month for most people. So it's a really, it can be a really debilitating thing. Um, a brilliant question that we actually got in um, onto my Instagram, actually, we had in around painful periods. I wanted to raise it with you. Someone said, um, are painful periods potentially a sign of suboptimal health if it isn't found to be anything specific like endometriosis? And like I said, we'll come on to kind of talk about specific conditions in a bit. But I was really interested by that question because the thing is that it is so hard to cut through the narrative. And I have definitely felt this where you almost feel like a bit to blame for your painful periods as in I've had every investigation going. And uh, when you're told, no, 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 you're absolutely fine. You suddenly start questioning like, is it my diet? Am I not doing this? Is that wrong? And it becomes almost like a bit of a blame game. And I know that that internal narrative that I've had, and I'm sure many others have had, where you kind of start to feel as though you're doing something wrong. So yeah, I wondered if we could kind of address that. Are period pains a sign of suboptimal health? And, you know, is there anything that we can do to manage them if it isn't found to be something like a specific condition? Yeah, definitely. So I, um, there's, gosh, lots to 
address on this uh, in this topic, but um, it's a very good um, point. And I always talk to patients about lifestyle factors because I think it's really important and it's not just all about kind of taking medication or, um, you know, just looking at it very kind of like down the microscope lens. But I think that sometimes the fact that we've started talking about lifestyle a lot more when it comes to health is maybe where that blame kind of thing comes in. Um, and what I would say is that I see a lot of people who are, what I would say, optimum health, who have terrible periods. And on the other hand, I see a lot of people who I think, well, I would change X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E about your life, and they don't have any problems with their periods at all. So, you know, you get both spectrums, and I think it's just kind of very unfair for people who are really trying really hard often. Um, if someone asks me, you know, do you, do you think I need to change X, Y, Z about my life, then I would probably turn that around and say, well, if you're asking me that, then I think you already maybe think that you could, there's something that you need to do better. And so I think that, you know, there are lots of lifestyle things that will alter our gynae health and, and you know, your, your ovaries are not just down there pumping away and doing their thing. There's lots of things that can affect it. So, you know, th and things that we don't think about. And so the last four chapters of my first book are all about lifestyle. So um, sleep, um, food, um, exercise and stress, because many people don't realize that, for example, not sleeping very well can actually really alter our hormones and all our hormones talk to one another. So our stress hormone talks to, for example, our um, glucose hormones, talks to our ovarian hormones, talks to our thyroid hormones, all of these things are playing into one another. Um, and so I think that, I don't know, I think sometimes the whole kind of topic of like orthorexia almost is, um, is a huge thing. And I think particularly with social media, we're much more aware of things that we can do to optimize our health. Um, and, and But I don't think it should ever make you feel like you're not doing enough. If you think that you're kind of, I always say kind of like nailing the basics. So you're, you know, you're eating well most of the time, you're moving your body in a way that you enjoy, you are sleeping well, and you know, you're managing your stress levels as best you can in what's a really, really hectic, stressful world, then I think that, you know, you're doing well and sometimes actually over-focusing on certain aspects can actually be more detrimental than it can do benefit. Yeah, absolutely. I really wanted to just pick up on one thing there because I, I just kind of want to get a bit of a, a proper answer to it in terms of suboptimal health and period pain. So what you're saying is there is no connection from what we know to there being period pains and there being something that shows that, they're, that, that they are therefore in suboptimal health. And actually, like you said, um, and just to clarify, you can have someone who's quite, quite, quote unquote, maybe, you know, let's use examples like maybe they're a smoker and they don't exercise regularly or whatever. So let's say, but they have absolutely fine periods. And then you'll have someone, like you said, who is someone who exercises a lot, eats well, and they can have really heavy periods. And it's not kind of a connecting sign. There's not a correlation between those two things. No, generally not. I mean, there are some kind of conditions. So for example, thyroid health. So um, women are more likely than men to have problems with their thyroid um, hormone levels. Um, so having, you know, for example, really heavy periods can be a sign in a small number of people that, you know, thyroid um, health is not quite up to shape. But um, overall, in the vast majority of people, it's not normally a way that we diagnose other underlying health yeah. conditions. Thank you. Um, 
in addition to pain, I know that another symptom that, that many people suffer with is mood changes across their cycle and in some cases that escalating to include disorders such as pmdd um something that's actually you know credit to vicky patterson who's talked a lot about that recently because it's something that i previously didn't know much about um one of the questions i had in was around knowing when pms is in fact pmdd so i wondered if you could explain explain the two so when is pms pms and when is it pmdd and perhaps covering what when one might um kind of look out for those signs and, and be concerned they might be experiencing something more than just normal mood changes and fluctuations across a monthly cycle so i mean well i'm sat in a room of predominantly women i don't need to tell you that your hormones are going to alter your mood at various points in the cycle but it's very individual it depends on on each individual person and i really think it can depend month by month. You might get some months where your PMS is awful and then other months where you don't even really think about it maybe. Um, so PMS stands for premenstrual syndrome and then PMDD is a very severe type of PMS which stands for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, now I think most of us will get some kind of PMS symptoms most months, um, whether you notice it or not. Um, Mine's the like burst into tears at, <laughs> at any point. I'm just like, I could cry. <laughs> yeah, and it's really common. And, you know, because I think, you know, it's really important to be aware that on any kind of given day, your hormonal sort of makeup in your body is actually quite different to what it was a few days ago because it's changing all the time. So if the sort of chemistry that's going on is different, how you feel is also going to be different. And so I think tracking your cycle is a really good way of kind of working out, you know, is this actually really related to my hormones? Because I think we have to remember that we tend to blame hormones on everything. So sometimes you might just actually just be in a bad mood or you might just be feeling really annoyed about something because something's really annoyed you. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think we should take um, hormonal fluctuations lightly. Now, there's over 150 um, symptoms of um, PMS and PMDD, but um, PMDD, uh, to give you a very general definition, is when your symptoms are so severe that you essentially can't function. Um, there are, um, there's a set criteria for diagnosing it and you have to have four or five core symptoms. Um, which are all related to um, mood um, and energy levels, anxiety, um, those types of um, really debilitating symptoms. But generally speaking, the kinds of conversations I will have with people who have PMDD, they come into the consultation room and they tell me, I feel like I want to kill myself and everyone around me. And I don't say that lightly because these people genuinely feel suicidal for they have their period and the period starts and it, they feel like a completely different human being. And it's, I mean, I just can't imagine that. But, you know, in a room of people this size, unfortunately, there will be probably at least one or two people in here who don't actually have to imagine it because it genuinely happens to them. Um, we estimate that it happens to about five to ten percent, uh, five to eight percent of the, the population, um, which isn't a small number, is it? Um, it's it's really it can be really debilitating and, and unfortunately historically there have been a lot of people who've been diagnosed uh, misdiagnosed with um, mental health conditions such as bipolar disorder um, severe depression um, but 
You need to track your symptoms throughout your menstrual cycle and you need to provide that information to your doctor or gynecologist to you know, confirm that or refute that that's the diagnosis. Um, and it's not always easy. Um, but I think that we need to be more aware of the fact that this is a real condition and it's not sort of all in your head. Um, and it's happening for you know, a real reason because your hormones are changing. And we don't really understand, as with most gynecological conditions, why some people get it and some people don't. But there definitely are some people who are a bit more sort of, I hate the word sensitive because it sounds a bit sort of dismissive, but more sensitive to um, specifically progesterone, which is the, the hormone that we have much more of um, in the lead up to our period, but also more sensitive to the fluctuations in hormones, the changes in the hormones that happen throughout the cycle. I think it's really important we just touch on tracking cycles in this kind of more general period chat because I know that it's something that you really recommend. It's something that I have done for a long time now. And I know that there are a couple of places that you recommend, you know, non-affiliated, but recommend people go to track their cycle that can be really helpful. So for those people who aren't yet tracking their cycle, what do you recommend in terms of apps or, or anything else that can really help them to do that? Yes, I mean, I think apps are really easy because they're just there, aren't they? And we look at our phone probably too much during the day. Um, you can do it old school and use a diary, whatever you like. Um, I use an app called Clue. Um, I just think it's really easy to use. And um, I didn't realise how long I've been using it for. I was like looking back through my um, through my app a few weeks ago, actually. And I was like, oh, OK, I've been quite diligent with this. Um, but it is really good just to help you kind of like pick up on what's going on and um, I mean I've certainly had problems myself with um, really painful periods um, and actually it was my husband who was like do you think you need to go and see a gynecologist and I was like well I just look in the mirror but uh, that one's not <laughs> helping me um, and uh, but this is the thing sometimes you do even even I sometimes just need someone else to tell me like do you think that something's not quite right um, but it was actually through looking back at the data in my app that I thought, oh, actually, I'm not making this up. I have actually been having this for quite some time. Um, and so I think it's just really useful because there's lots of um, lots of the apps have preset things that you can track. So you can, you know, track obviously the timing and the duration of your um, cycle and your, your period. Um, and then you can track things like how heavy it is, um, how painful it is, and, and lots of other things like um, mood changes, for example, cravings, changes in sleep, all these things you can get a lot of data on yourself. So in terms of kind of if you are experiencing problems with your period, a really good place to start can be tracking yeah. just so that even if you're going to go and visit a healthcare professional, which obviously I'm sure you advise, you have that kind of data that you're armed with to be able to say, this is what's going on for me. And you and you feel a little bit more maybe bolstered in terms of your um, ability to convey what's going on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not mandatory and you can definitely go and see your doctor without having tracked your cycle. But I just find it makes the consultation so much more constructive. And I don't know about you, but I mean, I personally get a bit overwhelmed when I go and speak to a doctor. Um, so just to have something there, I think is is quite helpful. Yeah. I want to move on to talking about kind of specific problems that one might experience within their, um, you know, within their periods. And I think that um, PCOS is a, is a big one for a lot of people. I think it affects one in 10. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it, it varies amongst populations mm -hmm. and certainly in um, Asian populations, it's much higher than that. Um, and I, I don't really think that I sometimes look at the numbers and I think, oh, I'm sure it's higher than that. Yeah, well, you must feel that seeing people. Yeah, exactly. Time, but, um, 
I guess with PCOS, it would be really great to understand exactly what it is, because I know that it's a syndrome that covers a lot of different symptoms and it can be present in different people in different ways. So what do we know about that kind of umbrella term of PCOS and how does it affect people? Yeah, so um, PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, some people might call it PCOD, polycystic ovarian disease, it's the same thing. Um, and it's a, a, so a syndrome is where you have a collection of symptoms. And so there is a set criteria, you need two of three. Um, so it's absent or irregular periods, um, which as a gynaecologist, I would say that's the most common thing that I see in people with PCOS. Also, um, excessive testosterone levels, so male hormone levels, which can also manifest as um, excess hair growth or very oily skin. And then I think that's more common. I think GPs will see that more commonly because people are going to their GP you know, um, reporting um, that problem. And then also having a scan, an ultrasound scan, which shows lots and lots of little cysts on the ovaries. Now, the term ovarian cysts tends to really freak people out, and I totally understand that. It's normal for your ovaries to make cysts. That's how the eggs get out. Um, we call them follicles in medical language. Um, and so what these, what this sort of cystic appearance of the ovaries is, is basically eggs that have become trapped on their um, sort of maturation um, process and they're not able to get out of the ovaries and that's due to um, sort of alterations in the hormonal signals that the ovary is both sending out and receiving um, and it's, it's very complex um, in terms of what's really sort of going on but essentially um, I hate the term some people call them lazy ovaries because the ovaries are not releasing an egg but um, if you're not um, ovulating regularly, so not releasing an egg on a sort of monthly-ish basis, um, then you're not going to be getting a period um, on that sort of monthly-ish basis either because what happens throughout the cycle is that there's lots of different sort of feedback loops. And so if you release an egg, then it kind of sets a timer off that, you know, lots of hormones are sort of changing and uh, planning for that pregnancy that most of us don't really want <laughs> most months and uh, um, then if you don't get pregnant after that egg has been released then you know the egg the egg timer <laughs> goes off after about 14 days and you have a period so that's sort of how it works yeah i i think with pcos um i've seen a lot more conversation around it recently which i think is really great in terms of understanding the symptoms how it might present itself but i also think that kind of matched with that there's been this surge in online um presences let's say talking about quote unquote cures for PCOS or managing your PCOS and a lot of that being attributed to lifestyle factors. Now I know that as you said, there are a lot of things that we can do within our lifestyle that can help us to manage our hormones and to, and to maybe manage certain conditions. But do you find yourself maybe getting a little bit frustrated by this idea that all of it is lifestyle driven? And is there anything that the medical um, kind of profession can do in terms of, you know, someone's really struggling with whether it be irregular periods or painful periods or something that kind of comes under that um, PCOS umbrella that you can do to help that kind of goes beyond again going back to that kind of blame game of thinking that someone always has to be doing something themselves and maybe not seeking the help that they actually could have when it comes to PCOS. Yeah, there's so much written online about lifestyle and PCOS, and it's very important because actually every medical guideline out there all over the world 
says that the first line treatment is lifestyle modification. And again, it's all kind of like going back to what I call like nailing the basics. So doing all the really basic things to make sure that you're actually kind of looking after your body in general. And all of these will have a positive impact on your overall health as well as potentially PCOS. Now, typically people who have PCOS may be heavier than people who don't. And the reason that's important is because um, we have to look at it on a kind of like biochemical level. So um, fat tissue, so adipose tissue, is very hormonally active. So it makes estrogen, it makes other hormones, um, but it's important the estrogen production is important because that is one of the things that can sort of drive um, the PCOS cycle. What happens is if you have a lot of estrogen, your body can turn it into testosterone, um, which then sort of stops that normal feedback loop um, to the ovaries and stops you from ovulating. Um, but, you know, there are lots of people who actually are not by the textbook overweight in any way who also have PCOS. And so it becomes a slightly difficult sort of conversation because I mean it has to be very individualized and I think that's one of the problems about online information isn't it it's not really um, individualized in the way that it would be in a consultation but yeah I think there's a lot of um, blame with the whole lifestyle thing now can you cure PCOS through your lifestyle well lots of people if their lifestyle is a problem uh, originally can actually find that by changing little things their cycle might become more regular um, but there are people who I see who you know again are doing everything perfectly and will still have really irregular cycles and awful PCOS. Now if you have PCOS and you're having very irregular cycles um, now some people don't have any periods at all but if they're very irregular Sometimes they're very heavy and very painful when they do come um, because one of the things that stops your period from being super heavy is the progesterone production. And when you don't ovulate, you don't make really any progesterone. Um, and so that allows the estrogen on its own to act and cause the lining to become quite thin. And then when the body eventually does shed it, it sort of manifests itself as a really heavy period, which is often quite painful because your um, the muscle of your uterus is really going for it, trying to help it all get out. And so that brings me on to one of the reasons why I find it a little bit difficult, this kind of a lifestyle discussion when it comes to PCOS, because people are like, oh, the doctor just wants to put you on the pill and da-da-da. And you look, taking the contraceptive pill can help you to bleed every month and for some people that might be the most important thing they just don't want to have that oh my god when when am I going to start bleeding and then suddenly it's torrential and, and that that's really distressing for a lot of people you cannot reset your hormones by using the contraceptive pill okay but it's really important that um, we as health, uh, healthcare professionals um, explain the safety aspect of using hormones in PCOS. So if you have PCOS and your lining is getting really thin and you're not having about four periods per year, so a period approximately every three months, you have a higher chance of getting an abnormal thick lining. So by abnormal, I mean the cells start to become precancerous and can potentially turn into a cancerous lining. And so that is the reason why, as doctors, we're very keen to make sure that people with PCOS are having a bleed at least every three months. I, I always say once a season, and my friends laugh at me at work, and they're like, Anita, you live in London, there's four seasons in one day. 
Um, but, you know, you need to be having a bleed every so often because you don't want that lining to get excessively thick and become abnormal because that's dangerous. So that's sort of the, the health aspect and um, sort of the safety aspect. And that's why I find it a little bit difficult that, you know, the conversation often around lifestyle kind of makes people quite anti, um, you know, sort of traditional medications when actually there is a really sensible reason. But, you know, look, I'll put my hands up. We're not always very good at explaining as doctors why we offer a certain treatment. And I guess it's just helpful to have that information and be armed with that if you are, you know, struggling, going to a doctor and being armed with a little bit of knowledge that you can say, you know, what are my options and being able yeah. to have those conversations. I know that one of the things, I, I, is this covered in the book, sort of how to have conversations with your GP about problem periods? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Amazing. It is. It's all in there. That's, I think that's really helpful because I think I know, even from myself, you know, when I have had struggles, I found it really hard to articulate what's going on and sort of being like, you know, it's a little bit awkward talking about our periods and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I think actually that's really helpful. So I can't wait to read that. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. One of the things I picked up on there is the um, kind of, you know, discussion of absence of a period. And obviously in, in that case, we were talking about it in a PCOS setting, but I know that more and more we're hearing about more instances of where there might be an absence of a period. And I think obviously it's really important to kind of caveat this whole section when we come onto the subject of amenorrhea with saying that, and I'm sure you'd say the same, you know, if you aren't having a period, the first place to go is your GP and to have that conversation to rule out anything sinister. But we know that one thing that can come up and something that's really been something that I've suffered with and, and many people that I've interacted with, which is hypothalamic amenorrhea, kind of the absence of a period, um, not through sinister reasons, um, but often through the kind of body not being able to deal with the amount of stress that's placed upon it. Is that right? Um, and I think I would love to hear about, um, you know, basically I'll just say that in in a week I might get five to ten messages from women who are saying I've lost my period what do I do and so it'd be really great to hear from you one what we mean by hypothalamic amenorrhea and then also um in terms of the management of it I think a lot of women are just so confused as to what's going on for them and how they might be able to get that cycle back I think we have to um really applaud Alice for her amazing pronunciation <laughs> no it wasn't <laughs> it's not easy it's a lot of words. <laughs> so hypothalamic amenorrhea, we can we can abbreviate it to HA. Let's do um, from now on. <laughs> it, it basically means that your period stops um, because your body is essentially overloaded. And it does this as a kind of protection um, mechanism because there's only so much that your body can do and you need to use energy to have a period and to make all the hormones that you need. And so sometimes, you know, the body just needs to keep the heart beating instead. Honestly, I mean, I say it in jest, but I'm being serious. It's a sign that there's too much going on and it's a very complex interplay between all of the hormones. This is, again, you know, we're not really very educated on what actually affects what's going on with our female hormones because you know actually having you know a week of really terrible sleep for example can actually have a really detrimental effect and um i don't know if you've ever heard of something called social jet lag we've all had those kind of weeks where like you just feel like you're like chasing your tail you're really stressed and you've got all these deadlines and then you've got like tons of laundry and you've got no food in the house um and then you have a fight with your boyfriend and then you need to pay your rent and oh you know all these things and you know it, it's just part of everyday life isn't it we're not really meant to do that we're kind of meant to um sort of um feast and then lie in caves for a while i think aren't we <laughs> 
Um, if only. <laughs> um, maybe that could be like the new wellness trend, like going to lie in a cave for a week instead of going to a spa. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's go. My next retreat. Uh, exactly. But uh, no, seriously, you know, we we um, push our bodies really to the max. Yeah. Um, and so there are a lot more a lot more people, I think, who are um, experiencing um, hypothalamic amenorrhea these days. And I was looking for a statistic, actually, when I was writing the book. And um, gosh, I can't remember now. There's, there's 189 references to scientific studies in this book um, because I'm really um, I'm really passionate about making sure that I'm giving the most accurate data, but I couldn't find anything from this decade. I can't remember the date that the study's from about the prevalence, um, but it, I'm sure it's from like the early 2000s or the 1990s. And I, yeah, I find that really interesting because one of the things that I think can really happen, and I'll just speak from a personal perspective, is I think a lot of people can almost, and I know this sounds crazy to say, but almost not realise that they're period isn't really coming. I remember for me personally, you know, I was doing a hell of a lot of exercise. My sole focus was my body composition. So when my period didn't come, I wasn't like, oh no, I'm pregnant or something awful is going wrong. I was just like, eh. And the One less thing to think yeah. about. And then the next one comes and it was, ah, uh, you know, and, and it was only after like a significant period of time that I was then like, oh, okay, something's not quite right here. But I think that a lot of people, particularly within the wellness space, like when we're driven by you know, exercising all the time and, and di our diet being really healthy and, and we're, you know, putting a lot of stress on ourselves to achieve a lot of things. You know, if your period doesn't come and maybe you've had problems with it before, it's been incredibly painful. If that doesn't then happen, you know, I think a lot of people don't report it or don't go to their GP or only go when there's a significant problem. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, and that I'm interested that by that, that not being supported by research, I wonder if it's just a lack of reporting and maybe some level of kind of shame and embarrassment around it as well. I think there's a lack of reporting and I think it's often misdiagnosed as PCOS. Well, it, that's what happened to me. Yeah, and from a hormonal sort of perspective, it's actually a bit different to PCOS. So it's obviously not great to not have a period, but you don't have so much estrogen when you have hypothalamic amenorrhea. So you don't have that same kind of like um, issue that I was talking about with the lining getting too thick. But often oestrogen levels are really low and a lot of people actually report that they get night sweats um, and you get often sort of menopausal symptoms, unfortunately. Um, so people can't sleep, they feel super anxious, they feel exhausted all the time. Um, you know, oestrogen is good for us um, in, in moderation, um, but uh, it, it's really, the problem is, is that you need oestrogen not just for a period, but you need oestrogen to look after your heart, to look after your bones, and also to look after your brain health, as well as many other functions in the body. So that's why it's really important. Um, and I've had conversations with people before um, who say, well, I know that, you know, for example, I'm training for this event, so that's why my period stops. And I'm like, mm, okay, that's fine that you know why it's happened, but it doesn't make it okay. Um, ideally, you want to be, you know, your period is kind of like a vital sign in a way. Um, and so it's a really difficult question to answer about how you can get it back. And it's not about, you know, body fat percentages or whatever. You know, you can get those kind of scales where it tells you your body fat. And some yeah. people will not have a period um, when their body fat um, is, you know, in the kind of like normal range. Um, and other people can have a really low body fat and actually be 
still having periods. And I also think that that comes down to also the, the variability in terms of why it might affect one person and not another. So one of the things that I really recognise is someone saying, well, how much training are you doing a week? Or how many rest days are you taking a week? And thinking that that's kind of the gold standard and that will mean that they can yeah. get their period back. And I think it's really important, particularly from a personal training perspective, that we understand that everyone has a different threshold at which that might tip them over yeah. into being overly stressed. So for someone that might be four days a week of training and for another person it might be that they can tolerate a lot more than that but it's really important that we look at those individual variabilities rather than just saying you know two days of rest a week is going to be the way to get your period back or whatever totally and um you know you're so right the term threshold is a really good um, term because you know it's it's so variable and you know what's a rest day to one person actually might not be a rest day to another person because actually on that day you might be really stressed and working all the time and like doing all your laundry with all your dirty gym kit um but also it's interesting because you know i um i met a team of professional footballers um a few months ago and they were really fascinating and they were like well obviously like you know we train essentially every day of the week in some shape or form but we have to go to bed in the afternoon <laughs> so they actually go for a nap um and they have like specific foods that they're supposed to eat they're you know really it's all very kind of tightly controlled and Pretty much all of them were having, um, you know, regular periods, um, you know, and some of them did have really awful periods, um, you know, problems with them, but they're very healthy in quotes. Um, so it's really difficult. But I think that you ha if, if it's happening to you, what I would say is look at every aspect of your life and try and dial it down in each domain just a little bit. Because ugh, some people say, oh, we just need to stop exercising. Realistically, come on. If you enjoy exercise, and I think everyone here in this room does, because that's probably why you're here, you enjoy exercise. It's part of your maybe social life, part of you know what you do to relax. And if I turn around to you and say, well, don't do that thing that you really enjoy, I don't think you're going to, are you? So, you know, dial it down, try and get a little bit more sleep. Try and find a way to de-escalate some of the stress in your life. Make sure that you're actually fueling your body properly for your workouts. And it's really difficult to say all that to someone often because it can come across as quite dismissive and mm -hmm. like, oh, can you just do this? Can you just do that? But I just think if you chip away at every little area, it will have a cumulative effect usually. Yeah, and I do think that a big thing of that is understanding that it's not just about the diet and the exercise. I know for me personally, like we have to look at stress as a kind of global thing. Not, it's not just, you know, the exercise that we're doing and actually, oh, we just need to eat a little bit more. I know that Rini McGregor is really good at talking about kind of reds and, and, and HA yeah. in a really kind of thorough way. And um for me, it was understanding that there are lots of different ways that our body can become stressed. And, you know, you've mentioned sleep as one thing, um, you know, kind of m cognitive stress is another. So just again, like you said, not just looking at it as a very binary thing of being about diet and exercise and actually looking at your life as a whole and saying, well, if I'm having an incredibly stressful work week, do I also need to be doing seven Barry's classes and eating not enough to kind of fuel those things? Yeah, totally. It's, it, it's about that kind of full management of your life rather than just, you know, know the things that I think a lot of the time we can be told you know I, I just from my experience of what I receive in terms of messages a lot of it is oh how, how, like should I just be resting a bit more and I think it's really important that we look at overall stress rather than just those specific things um I want to move us on because I think it's really important that we cover 
one of the big topics that I'm sure is featured in your book, which is talking about endometriosis. We know that it's something that's thankfully getting a lot more airtime in in more recent years. Um, but it's still like, you know, critically underserved when it comes to the, the, the diagnosis of the condition in the UK, um, women waiting a hell of a lot of time to receive an endometriosis diagnosis, um, and even us just understanding what it is, we're just starting to learn a little bit more about how it might manifest and, and, and whether people are suffering from it or not. So first of all, I thought I'd just ask, what is it? What do we know it to be? How does it present itself in people? And if someone is concerned that that might be something that they have, what are the best steps for them to take to ensure that they're getting a quicker diagnosis than what we currently know is happening? Yeah, so endometriosis is a condition where you get, so you remember I talked about the endometrium, so the bit that is shed when you have a period. So you get tissue like the endometrium that grows outside of the uterus. It's not meant to be there. But even though it's in the wrong place, it reacts in the same way to your normal hormonal cycle so it thickens up at the start of the cycle um, and then when it comes to the time when you are meant to have your period it sheds in the same way that it would if it was inside the uterus but it's usually inside the um, pelvis and the abdomen can even be in your chest um, and it causes a lot of pain um, it's you getting um, that kind of a lot of inflammation going on where it's sort of bleeding inside and it's not internal bleeding in say, that sense but um, you get a lot of inflammation it can cause scarring and and so we always are sort of taught oh it's when you get painful periods but it's a lot more than that um, so a lot of people get pain during sex and I, I say that as the first second symptom um, because I think it's really important to be aware that um, having painful sex is not something that you have to tolerate and isn't something that you know, should accept as normal. And there is actually a, a whole section in the book about talking to your doctor about painful sex, because um, I think we're often not very forthcoming about it. Um, but you shouldn't feel ashamed to say that you find sex painful. Um, it can also manifest as a very painful uh, pain when you are opening your bowels, passing urine, um, and uh, some people can get blood in their stool. Um, it, it's um, it's a really nasty condition. Um, so how to so if you think that you maybe have endometriosis the first thing to do is to to speak to your gp and often um asking some really targeted questions can be um quite helpful for us to come to the diagnosis now the way to really confirm that you actually have it is to do um what we call keyhole surgery so laparoscopy where we put a, a small telescope in through the belly button usually and have a look around inside and you will see those deposits um in various locations um, and so, um, for example, yesterday I was doing a hysterectomy in the evening um, with one of my colleagues and we were doing it for a reason aside from endometriosis, but we could see very clearly that this lady had endometriosis because we see it sort of growing on, on the um, pelvis. So you don't have to have an operation though in order to get a diagnosis so we always say oh that's the gold standard but really the guidelines internationally are changing um, and actually um, often we recommend a trial of using hormones um, so using things like the contraceptive pill or um, the hormonal coil um, to see if that actually helps to suppress the symptoms because we have to be really mindful of the fact that doing an operation is not without risk and you know I acknowledge hormones are not for everyone, um, but it is one of the, the best treatments that we have at the moment um, to reduce the symptoms. It's not going to make endometriosis go away, but it can reduce the symptoms. I know that a lot of people are 
concerned sometimes about that being their only option when it comes to management of things like PCOS, like we've talked about the pill there, and also again in, in the situation with endometriosis. Are there any kind of, I guess, words of comfort that you might have for someone that's struggling, but they're nervous to take a hormonal contraception option? Um, as you've said, sometimes, you know, at the moment, that's the best option that they have. Um, if someone were with you and they were sort of going through their options and you said, I think this might be a good suggestion, just because I know I had a couple of messages from people who were concerned about that situation. Um, how would you kind of discuss that with them? And is there anything else that can be done that's that's a non-hormonal option? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that as a doctor, I am not financially incentivized in any way to prescribe any kind of medication, hormones, whatever. Um, and the reason why, and this is really important, I think, you know, we need to get better at explaining why we offer certain things. Um, and the reason why we use um, hormonal medications is because what they do is they stop that kind of um, uh, thickening of the um, endometrial tissue and then um, shedding. So you stop that kind of um, thickening inflammation scarring cycle um, and we think that that may help people's symptoms and help in the long term there is also some data to show that if you've had surgery for um, endometriosis using hormones afterwards actually reduces um, the the risk of recurrence and actually may increase the time for which you have um, fewer symptoms because it can come back even after surgery um, so you know, if um, if medications like that aren't working, then obviously surgery is an option and we can um, do surgery to um, break down any scar tissue that has formed, um, to remove areas of endometriosis, to take away um, cysts in the ovaries, which are specific to endometriosis called endometriomas. Um, but there are also non-hormonal treatments that you can have. So for example, using painkillers, um, uh, using, there's a medication called um, tranexamic acid, which a lot of people find really helpful, um, which helps to reduce the amount of bleeding that you have. But lots of people with endometriosis find that it actually helps with their pain. Um, but you know, look, I'll be honest, there aren't always a lot of great um, really targeted um, treatments out there but what I would say is that there are a lot of people who are working really hard to understand more about these conditions to make better treatments for the future. Fingers crossed there is a solution soon. <laughs> um, I wanted to move on to go through a couple of kind of more general questions that came in that I found really interesting. And one of them was really about the connection of problem periods and fertility. I know that a lot of people who have issues with their periods, whether that be that they're incredibly painful or that they have PCOS or that they have endometriosis or anything else that we've spoken about today, there is a level of concern that that might affect their fertility. So what do we know so far in terms of the connection between those things? Yeah, so I think often the first time that some people really start to think about their periods and notice what they're actually really like is when you start thinking that maybe you want to get pregnant. Um, I also want to say that if you're not planning on getting pregnant, that doesn't mean that you should not be entitled to have your problems addressed. I think that's really important to say. Um, now, I mean, there's such a spectrum of things that can cause problem periods and some of them can cause problems with getting pregnant. Um, whatever condition you may have, um, you should never really be told that you should um, either get pregnant to make it better um, or that you will never be able to get pregnant. Okay, I've seen quite a lot of people who've been told they've got PCOS, you'll never get pregnant and then there they are 
pregnant. Um, so if you don't want to get pregnant, you should still use contraception. Um, but, you know, I think it's really difficult to give a very general answer, but often periods are irregular. That is really the most common concern when it comes to fertility. And because if your period is irregular, so we're talking about, you know, you, you have absolutely no idea of when it's going to come and, and maybe you go more than sort of 35 days without having a period, you're less likely to be ovulating on a regular basis and ovulating reliably. And if you're not ovulating, you're not releasing an egg, so then you don't have that opportunity to become pregnant. So you have fewer opportunities throughout a year um, than somebody who's having a period every month-ish. So that's when it sort of becomes a concern. But this is the reason why I think it's really important that we are mindful of our periods, what's going on, and don't leave things. Because, again, this is a very personalised individual conversation that I would have with each patient. But, you know, ultimately, most of us probably would want to have a pregnancy at some point. And that's not the reason why you should prioritise your gynaecological health solely. But... I have seen a lot of people who are doing it frantically at the time when they want to get pregnant and that's probably not what you want to be doing. And also because if you do have something that, for example, needs surgery, generally speaking, we advise you not to try and get pregnant straight after for most types of surgery. So basically just being proactive and being yeah. interested in your in your body and and you know downloading one of those apps maybe and just getting familiar with what a cycle looks like for you is, is probably the best place to start and then if you are concerned then going to your GP or, or you know escalating the issue further Absolutely. yeah um moving on I I do think it's important that we talk about the other end of periods perimenopause and menopause is a super important part of that journey and I know that for a lot of people who are listening or who are here um, there's also concern when it comes to the other end um what is a kind of <laughs> again like I, I feel really bad making you like generalize so much here but because we have to for the podcast, what's like a, a kind of generally normal experience when it comes to the perimenopause? Are there any times when you feel like um, people should be concerned and they should kind of raise their concerns with their GP? Yeah, so really good question. So the menopause means the final menstrual period. And you don't really know that you've gone through the menopause until one year after it happens, because the definition is that you haven't had a period for over 12 months. The perimenopause is the time leading up to that menopause when you're having hormonal fluctuations. And so the average age to stop having your periods completely is 51 years. The time of the perimenopause for some people might be a couple of months when they really notice that their hormones are changing. For some people, it might be years. I've noticed I'm having so many conversations with people about menopause at the moment and a lot of patients who are really anxious that they're going to have a horrible menopause when they're not even in that kind of situation. Uh, and I think this probably comes from the fact that we're talking about the menopause much more and I'm really glad that we are. Um, but lots of people will actually just kind of, it'll happen and they won't really notice it. You'll often find that your periods, um, they start to often become more frequent. Um, so your cycle might shorten. Um, so that fun. can often be, yeah, I know, really fun. Um, and then they kind of tend to space out. Also during that time, it's not unusual to find that your period might become a bit heavier um, because you're not reliably ovulating um, as much. Um, and it's the ovulation and the production of that progesterone that stops the lining from getting super thick, um, which I've mentioned a couple of times. And, and so that's the reason why they can become a bit more sort of um, heavy and often painful. Um, and then 
The other thing I want to say is that, you know, lots of people are talking about HRT, which again is great. Um, and I'm very happy to prescribe it. I'm very happy to not prescribe it. It's absolutely fine. What I think a lot of people don't realise is that you don't have to have stopped having your periods to take HRT. So HRT is um, hormone replacement therapy. So it's usually oestrogen with progesterone. Some people can have oestrogen only if they've had a hysterectomy, so had the uterus removed, because the progesterone component of HRT is really just for safety to stop the lining from getting super thick. And really it's the oestrogen that the lack of oestrogen that causes us to get most of the, the um, menopausal symptoms. Um, and there are so many, and it's not just things like hot flushes, um, vaginal dryness um, and mood changes. They're the kind of things that we hear about a lot. Often it can be things like headaches. Um, it can be, you know, problems with sleep. It can be, um, you know, fatigue. So many different things, and and that's why I think it's really important to be um, aware of menopausal symptoms because actually a lot of people again misdiagnosed with things like depression, um, and actually are having menopausal symptoms and could be helped by having something really simple like HRT. Is it true that if your mum had a good or bad menopause, quote unquote, um, that that's going to be predicting how yours might be? Like I was told that because my mum had a great <laughs> menopause in her words, that like as a result, mine would probably be okay. But is there any truth in that? So your mum recommends the menopause, does she? She, she was like, <laughs> you've got to go through it. It's great. <laughs> good times. Um, <laughs> Yes and no. So the age that your mum went through the menopause probably predicts when you will go through the menopause. Um, there's a lot of data to support that. Whether it's good or bad, I think is not so strongly correlated, but, you know, always worth having that conversation. Um, some people will go through a slightly early menopause. So I said the average age is, um, is 51. Anything above the age of 45 is normal. Um, if you are younger than 45, then that is early. And that might be relevant these days because we're all leaving it a bit longer to have mm. kids. And, you know, I was not young when I had my babies. So, you know, um, it, it's not always easy. And I think it's really important um, as we are delaying families to just have that conversation because you don't know. Maybe it happened in the late 30s, early 40s. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that's worth knowing about yourself. Good to know. Um, I have taken up lots of your time and I'm really keen that we ask the um, attendees today if they have any questions because I know that was a really important part of us getting together today. So I will stop hogging you. I will hand over to anyone that has a question and I will come around with my mic. This is around contraception. Often you're told that when you're on contraception, you're not having proper periods. I'm really glad that you brought that up because we haven't addressed that. So. When you are using hormonal contraception, um, it's quite common to maybe not have a period. And that's absolutely fine. Um, because you remember I was talking about the sort of safety aspect of, um, of hormones and having periods. When you take contraception, whether that's the combined pill, the progesterone only pill, or have a um, hormonal coil, which contains a synthetic progesterone, your lining is protected by that progesterone. And that's, that's the most important thing. So you're not having the same kind of hormonal cycle. You will still have a fluctuation in your hormones, um, but it's not a proper period in the sense that it's not happening because of the fact that you are, you know, fluctuating through your own hormone production. Um, but it's still it's still a bleed. It doesn't really tell you 
that all the feedback loops are kind of working in the same way, but you know that shouldn't necessarily be anxiety provoking unless you're worried about it. Um, but you know if you're not having a period, it's not unsafe in the same way that it is that when I was talking about things like PCOS and hypothalamic amenorrhea. Just to add to that, is there something in this book that goes into detail about like sort of different contraceptive options, or is it in the previous book? Uh, the previous book talks um, more about contraception in terms of contraception as uh, not getting pregnant. But um, as I alluded to, we do use a lot of hormonal um, medications that are designed as contraceptives because they actually do really help with a lot of the, the symptoms that we get. And I do talk a lot in the new book about the rationale um, for using um, hormonal contraception um, to help with symptoms because I, I honestly think that that's something that we're very bad at explaining to our patients. That's really helpful. Cool. Um, next question, which was at the back here. Um, mine was actually the same question, but a bit of a follow up. So how if we can't like track our periods how can we look after like our gynecological health in that sense before we go and seek out like a medical opinion you know if you're talking about having problems with your periods then you know you can still track the things like um problems with you know if you're having a lot of pain track that kind of thing according to the days that you're bleeding um, you can still track things like um, how heavy it is uh, also symptoms that you get um, because you know obviously hormones that we produce make us feel awful sometimes and absolutely hormones that we take can also do that you can you know so you can still track all of those things um, it doesn't matter that it's not happening because of hormones that you're producing but you know it can help us to maybe optimize what you're already taking or you know um, you know try and improve things for you in that respect hiya um, i just wanted to know what your thoughts were on natural family planning and whether you recommend that as a way of tracking yeah periods and Fertility. So natural family planning is basically a way of getting to know your cycle and working out when you are fertile and when you're not fertile. So you're fertile for about five or six days during every cycle. So for um, the and what a lot of people don't realize actually is that you're um, most fertile before you ovulate. Okay, and this is one of the caveats with um, with using ovulation tests, and a lot of people use them these days when they're trying to get pregnant. But if you wait until the ovulation test is positive, you've kind of missed the boat because actually your most fertile days are about two or three days before you ovulate, because sperm can live for five days um, in um, in your vagina and cervix and uterus, and uh, then it kind of waits around um, for the egg to be released, and then the egg can survive for twenty four hours after it's released so that gives you that sort of fertile window but you know sperm needs a bit of time to travel up and get there so that's why you're a bit more fertile um, before you ovulate um, so what i would say and there's lots of apps and there's a very well-known company um, uh, who make natural family planning apps and what i would say is i think they're fine if you wouldn't be devastated if you got pregnant because the thing is that there are you know, as we've touched on, lots of things that we do in our daily life that can affect the timing of when we ovulate. And if you ovulate early, then you can get it wrong because you can think based on the last cycle or the last however many cycles you've tracked that you're not going to be fertile in those couple of days maybe before. So if you ovulate two days early, say, for example, 
your fertile window starts two days earlier than you realize, but maybe you have unprotected sex during that time and then you can get pregnant. Now, obviously, every contraception has a failure rate, um, but that's something that you couldn't really control. If you forget a pill, okay, look, we've all done it, um, but it, it's something in your control, if you see what I mean, and you can kind of know that you've missed it and you can control it afterwards. Whereas you can't control what's happening because you don't you don't get a kind of prodrome that you're going to ovulate. You, it, it just happens and the body doesn't know five days earlier when you want to have sex and you think you're not fertile, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I don't judge anybody for what kind of, kind of contraception they do or don't use. But I think it's really important that we understand the caveats of it and how um, we can um, make errors that can maybe lead to something that actually is really devastating. That was such a great answer. Thank you. During ovulation, I often just think I wish I felt like this all the time. Um, just like increased energy, um, like positive outlook. Um, and I was wondering if there's any ways that you can sort of naturally supplement estrogen or just keep your hormones in that state for a little bit longer because it's just the best part of the month every month i wish there was <laughs> i personally don't like it when i ovulate because it's painful same so ovulation pain is a real thing and i once thought i had appendicitis when i was in fiji in this really remote place and i was like oh my gosh how am i going to get somewhere where i can go and get my appendix taken out and then i realized it was ovulation anyway that's not about me um so and no there isn't because the problem is is that if we are kind of like supplementing different hormones then we're going to change the time of ovulation and then you're not going to get that glorious moment the following month um, uh, so no, there isn't, unfortunately, um, but so just enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> I, I just think on that point, it's really important that we talk about those like individual variances and we've kind of touched on it a little bit today, but one of the things that I think is sort of quite popular at the moment is this idea that we're being told what we experience at different points of our cycle and that that's quite a binary thing. So at this point of the month, you'll feel this and particularly in relation to training. So I know that when we last spoke and I know we've come on a long way since then, you know, it was like in this time of the month, it's great to do this type of exercise. And in this type of the month, it's great to do this type of exercise, whether that be endurance or strength. But I think that Correct me if I'm wrong, but what we know right now is that there's no kind of um, definitive structure as to how a woman should approach their training in terms of getting the best from themselves. And that actually that like, you know, for, for example, with yourself, you love ovulation and you feel great. And Anita saying, oh, actually, I find it really painful that those variances are really important for us to understand and knowing that we're going to experience things differently across a cycle rather than kind of accepting that we should, quote unquote, be feeling a certain way at different points of the month. Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? And it's really individual because there are some people that say, gosh, I really have to train according to my cycle. But personally, I don't notice any difference, I have to say. Um, I also, I do talk about this a little bit in the book that I think that we are maybe starting to pay too much attention to our menstrual cycles, controversial um, concept from a gynecologist, but I don't think you have to be dictated by it. If it helps you, that's fine. But I don't think that you should get to a point where you open an app and think, okay, today I'm supposed to feel terrible or, you know, today I'm supposed to feel amazing. I think that it's, I think it varies according month by month. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I do think maybe we're starting because there's so much in terms of, you know, quite interesting tech when it comes to um, female health. And it's really important. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know if we're starting to go a little bit too far the other way. Just on that, 
a lot of people are kind of under this assumption that we have a lot of influence over quote unquote balancing our hormones. I see it a lot online, you know, align your hormones, balance your hormones. Is there actually any truth in that? Like, can we balance our hormones? And if there is, like, what should we all be doing to do that? Well, overall, our hormones aren't really meant to be balanced because that's not how they work, because they work through the kind of like flux and, uh, you know, peaks and troughs. That's how they talk to one another. Um, but, you know, I think it's very boring, isn't it? But it's just the basics again of just doing all of the, the basic things that we need to kind of have a healthy body, because ultimately it's not just about our um, sort of gynecological health you know, female hormones in isolation. All of these things are really important for so many other aspects of health. And obviously, like I'm a gynecologist, I only think about periods and vaginas and uteruses. But ultimately, you know, we've got a heart that we need to look after. We've got joints that we need to look after. We've got our mental health as well. All of these things, they all play into one another. Uh, hi, Anita. Um, with conditions such as amenorrhea and REDS, could they be a future indicator of your fertility or ability to get pregnant in the future? That's a really good question. Um, so if you are not having a period because you've got something like um, REDS or hypothalamic amenorrhea, um, there doesn't seem to be a correlation with your future fertility. As long as you can get your, um, your menstrual cycle back, then, you know, you'll start ovulating and then that gives you, you know, the chance of pregnancy that everyone else has. The reason it is really important to get try and get your period back is that it often happens at the time in our lives when we are building our peak bone strength and we don't really know if we can recover that. Um, and so we can start to get um, you know, problems with thin bones, which leads to problems later in life, such as you know, um, getting things like osteoporosis, so um, getting um, fractures, breaking bones through very minimal um, impact. Uh, and so that's why one of the reasons why I think it's really important in terms of long-term health, more so probably than um, fertility. Okay, I could ask you questions for the rest of the evening, but I realize that you have twins that you might need to get back to. <laughs> So thank you so much, Anita, for a really insightful chat. Anita's new book, Problem Periods, is out now. And if you'd like to get your hands on it, we will put the link for that in the show notes. To everyone who's come this evening, I'm really grateful for you showing up on a very cold Wednesday. So thank you so much for your time, for coming out and for some really brilliant questions as well. Thank you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group